This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. If we lose, I will destroy the world, said Kim Jong-il, supreme leader of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. The great leader, as Kim now calls himself, can change the course of history with an act of unimaginable devastation. He possesses an arsenal of nuclear weapons and the ballistic missiles to, dis- to deliver them. In his new book, Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World, Gordon Chang paints our current conflict with Kim as perhaps the 21st century's moment of greatest consequence. Chang has given briefings at the National Intelligence Council, the Central Intelligence Agency, the State Department, and the Pentagon. His writings on China and North Korea have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Weekly Standard, and the South China Morning Post. Gordon Chang, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for being here. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. All right. Can, can you, uh, just to start off, give us a, uh, tell us a little bit about the culture and the living conditions in North Korea? Well, North Korea is still a totalitarian state. Unlike China, it has not really changed that much from its origins. Um, it has been run by the Kim family since its founding in 1948. It was, first of all, Kim Il-sung and now Kim Jong-il. Um, the Great Famine of last decade has changed um, North Korean society, and to a certain extent it made the people freer because the government, in a moment of urgent need, withdrew um, from the daily lives of people because it was no longer able to provide food. And that has really given some space to many Koreans um, because if they were going to survive at all, they were going to have to think on their own and no longer depend on the state. So what we have seen in the last three or four years is Kim Jong-il trying to reassert control over society. So it is a very confusing place right now, but still it is perhaps the most oppressive country on earth. What methods has he used to try and uh, reassert his control? Well, he has um, enacted what many people call sweeping economic reform in July 2002. But what he really did was just recognize that the state had eroded, um, and therefore he just recognized reality. He also tried to um, flush uh, foreign currency out of people's mattresses. Um, because that sort of gave people some independence if they had their own currency. He's now tried to um, uh, make grain illegal. Um, and I'm sorry, I lost you just for a second there. Make what illegal? Grain. Ah, hmm. what? Grain? Yes. So, so anything uh, that's not state-controlled grain is illegal? Is that? Yes, basically... Um, Peasants have been trading in grain on on farmers' markets, and essentially what has happened um, is the state has seen that these markets flourish, and they're beyond state control. So um, they have now started to make grain sales illegal. They've now um, tried to um, extend the rationing system by which food is distributed to therefore make peasants and others rely on the state. Um, This is going to be very interesting because... Uh, what he is doing is really going back to the old method of doing things of a of a command economy where the state decides everything 
And I think that essentially what's going to happen in the next couple of years is that the harvests are going to decline again because people will no longer have the incentives to grow. And essentially we will see perhaps another great hunger like we did in the middle of last decade. So North Korea now is going through a very interesting time as Kim Jong-il, the absolute leader, is trying to basically go back to the old system that his father put together. Hmm. Now, now, uh, just give us some uh, idea of the apparatus that the, is in place in North Korea. Uh, is is it as thoroughly totalitarian as as it sounds? Are they able to enforce these uh, these dictums from from the the great leader? Trouble uh, enforcing um, the dictums from the great leader, um, and they don't have really the same mechanisms as they did before. Essentially, Kim Il-sung created overlapping security organizations that all spied on each other, and everybody spied on the Korean people. And and that was actually quite effective, um, because essentially what Kim Il-sung, the founder of North Korea, did was put together the most repressive society on Earth. Um, Now, uh, he is uh, Kim Jong-il, his son, is actually trying to build up again the security forces, and he's now relying much more on the military than his father ever did. Mm -hmm. So essentially we have a military-run government in North Korea with Kim Jong-il at the top. But it's not, I mean, it's marginally less efficient than his father's apparatus was. Yes, because the country is not as prosperous. We have to remember that after the Korean War, when the North Korea was just leveled by uh, Allied bombing, Um, Essentially, Kim Il-sung, by taking aid from both both Moscow and Beijing, created quite a prosperous state, one that was more prosperous than China and certainly more prosperous than South Korea. But by the middle 1970s, that system started to show the limits of what it could achieve, and both South Korea and China have gone on to prosperity, whereas North Korea has moved to destitution. Well, as the country became poorer, um, the Essentially, the Kim family had fewer resources in which to maintain all of these overlapping security organizations. And so the society has sort of loosened up a little bit. Kim Jong-il, the current leader, is now trying to reassert control through various means, including the use of the military. And is that is that a is that could that potentially be a problem by is he elevating the importance of the military in the in in sort of the government governmental role is that in any way a threat to his uh, his role well it uh, the um, elevation of the military he calls it his military first policy is really quite extraordinary because even under his father kim il sung um, it was a military dominated country but um in essence um kim il sung still kept the his ruling party the korean workers party at least nominally, on top of the military. Kim Jong-il has sort of reversed the process, letting the Korean Workers' Party sort of uh, atrophy while the military has taken over. Um, The problem, though, is that when you have a military-run government, um, all sorts of things can happen, including generals wanting to take over. Mm -hmm. So Kim Jong-il can basically be even uh, less secure, but nonetheless he has thrown in his lot with the military. Mm -hmm. This is sort of unusual because in in communist societies it is the party, whatever it's called, that is the ruling organization and the one that's supposed to lead society to the perfect state of communism. But what Kim Jong-il has done is essentially he said, 
enough of this baloney. I'm relying on the generals because they support me. And so essentially Kim Jong-il is the head of the military, is the head of all society. Mm -hmm. But it's a very, very difficult line for a dictator to walk. We're speaking with Gordon Chang, the author of Nuclear Showdown. And could you describe to us uh, the state of the nuclear program in North Korea right now? Kim Jong-il has two nuclear programs. One of them is based on plutonium as the fissile material, the other uranium. In his plutonium program, he has somewhere between 10 to 12 weapons. Um, uranium program, it's really unclear. We don't know. Um, but they may be two or three years away from actually starting up production of uranium weapons on a mass production scale. He has long-range missiles, which is what really gives his weapons program um, its, its strength. His missiles now can reach um, Hawaii, Alaska, and maybe the upper reaches of the West Coast. Irvine, I believe, is still safe. <laughs> but within five to seven years, his missiles will be able to reach any part of the United States and perhaps any part of the world. The one thing that we don't know is that whether he's been able to mate his weapons with his missiles. That's a very intricate and difficult-to-master process. We don't think that he's been able to do that yet because, first of all, he's got to shrink his weapons, and then he's got to uh, put them on top of the missiles and get all of the circuitry right. And as I mentioned, that's hard. So we don't know the, the full extent of, of what he can do. But one thing that we do know, going back to the issue of time, is that certainly within a decade and probably even a few years before that, he will be able to put his weapons on top of his missiles and point them anywhere he wants them to go. Well, I want to back up to just a minute, give it a little bit more context to this. It was at what period of time did his was his father involved in the um, production of nuclear weapons? When what's the time frame? When did they really begin to develop the nuclear weapon capability? That's an excellent question because uh, outside of people in Pyongyang, the North Korean capital, and, and maybe outside Beijing, um, we're not exactly sure. I mean, this program um, could go back to the mid-1980s, but probably goes back to the mid-1960s. Um, they have always wanted to have nuclear weapons. We've known that because we've known what Kim Il-sung has said to Mao Zedong of China, for instance, and what North Korean diplomats have said to their East German counterparts. Um, we know that since the mid-60s they've wanted a bomb, but whether they've actually started a program or not, uh, or when they actually started a program, is not exactly clear. I guess if we have to boil it down, um, probably the best thought is sometime around 1973, 1974. That's a sort of a best guess of many people. But so nonetheless, all, we're, we're uh, talking about a program which is quite old. Right, so in all probability, the Soviets helped them with the, initially with their program. The Soviets did help um, by providing training for North Korean scientists and engineers, okay. as did the Chinese. But at that stage, and we're talking about the middle 50s, it, it, the Soviets did not want them to have the bomb, um, but they, they were willing to provide civilian nuclear technology and just general nuclear technology. So this was uh, an important first start mm -hmm. for the North Korean program. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with uh, Gordon Chang. He's the author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. So uh, bringing us forward now, 
they have uh, obviously developed, uh, by your count, by I know the count of uh, most experts in this field, at least 10 deliverable nuclear weapons. Is that, would that be a fair statement? I think that's a fair statement. Um, deliverable might mean gravity delivered. In other words, <laughs> from dropping the them of out of plane. Yeah. But uh, they have somewhere in that neighborhood, and, yes. And they're obviously refining their process, and, and it's, it's coming to a point now where in the near future, with certainly within the next 10 years, they could be a potential deliverable threat to anywhere in the world. And that is certainly a frightening prospect. But it seems like we have kind of a, a race here, a race between the disintegration of North Korean society and the a capability of destroying any, any point in the world. So what does that race look like to you from where you, where you sit? Well, I sit um, on the east coast of the United States, so <laughs> I guess maybe I have a little bit less fear than you do. But uh, obviously, for, for anyone um, anywhere on Earth, this is a very frightening situation because we're not only talking about his ability to just incinerate a city. I think what people are more concerned about is that Kim Jong-il, by defying the international community, is shredding the world's arm control rules. And that means we're not just talking about a North Korean nuclear program. We're talking about an Iranian one, an Algerian one, a Syrian one. There are many nations that would want the bomb. And what has prevented them is our arms control rules and, and the nuclear taboo, the, the abhorrence of nuclear weapons. But what Kim Jong-il is doing is saying, look, you know, these rules don't really mean very much because I got away with it. And the fact that the Iranians are defying the international community now, I think, means that they've just taken the playbook from Kim Jong-il, and they've saw that he's gotten away with it, so they're trying to get away with it, too. That's really the frightening prospect yeah. of not just North Korea, but many uh, hostile and unstable states with the ultimate weapon. Yeah, it, it does, unfortunately, appear to the, uh, the untrained observer, at least, that you, if you have the bomb, you better tell them that you. You better tell the world you've got it, because it decrease. It appears to decrease the likelihood that you'll be invaded or something like that will happen to you. And now, now currently, the North Koreans are operating under a under a regime of sanctions, right? A, a worldwide sanctions against uh, North Korea, and well, there are right now. Uh, for instance, the United States um, has certain rules prohibiting trade. And um, because of um, Kim Jong-il's counterfeiting of American currency, oh, and he is the biggest and best counterfeiter of our dollars, um, probably we're going to see a whole new set of sanctions go into effect, largely because there's a fear that if we don't do this, um, the issue is what is he going to counterfeit next, hmm. um, consumer products, whatever. He also sells amphetamines and, and sells narcotics through his embassies. And so really what we've got is a, a criminal regime. Um, although the North Koreans get very upset when American diplomats say that, I mean, that is true. And so essentially um, people are now talking about a whole new set of, of uh, sanctions to deal with these non-nuclear problems. Do you think that's what they'll be discussing next month when they uh, have the six-country nuclear talks, or was that too hot of a topic yeah, to What's deal on the with? table? What is on the table for these talks? Well, the talks now are stalled, and um, people are talking about having the six-party talks um, restarted in February, but it's not very clear that that's actually going to happen. Mm. Um, the... What we're saying, what the United States is saying, is that the issue of counterfeiting and all this other illegal activity is separate and apart from the six-party talks. 
the North Koreans are taking the position that as long as we are trying to penalize them they can for these these activities they cannot participate in the nuclear talk. So essentially we've got a little bit of a standoff over that as well. Mm. I, I want to go back to a question. I, I'm not sure I got the, an answer from you on what is it say can we say that north korean society is in a steady state of decline that it's disintegrating at least as far as the civilian population is concerned i think that it's it's fair to say that state power has been on decline since the middle of last decade and essentially you know when you have um hundreds of thousands of north koreans escaping the country yeah you know that many of the internal rules and and structures have eroded to the point where the weakest citizens can get their will by fleeing. Unlike Castro, Kim Jong-il has never encouraged immigration. So essentially, we, when we see all these North Koreans leave the country, and you know, hundreds of thousands of them have left, it, it does mean that um, the 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 ability of the state to control people's lives has been declining. So in a sense, yes, that is disintegration. Well, and then there's this famous photograph, or aerial satellite photograph, of the uh, contrast between South Korea and North Korea with the no lights being on in North Korea and abundance of lights being on in South Korea. Um, you, you, I'm sure you're familiar with that. It's, yes. That was uh, an actual satellite photo. There's nothing I should know about that. That was, that was an actual right? I mean, undoctored and all the rest of it? Yes, I mean, it's, it's anyone, um, you know, there, there are satellite photos that are available from commercial sources, okay. and that they showed basically at night that South Korea looks like an island because there are very few lights between South Korea and China. And in other words, we're talking about the space where North Korea is. Right. If you look at those satellite photos, you'll see that there's only really one concentration of light at night, and that's Pyongyang, the capital. Yeah. Well, and the reason I'm bringing that up is that, that to me, indicates uh, certainly that the the state of things in, in North Korea is pretty abysmal. And we, of course, heard about the mass starvations and all the rest of it. Well, I, might, I guess where I'm going is, is are we looking at a situation where as things de- deteriorate, does does the great leader become more and more desperate and much more and in his psychology more likely to use nuclear weapons to get what he wants well, the threat kim, of nuclear weapons yeah that's an excellent question because kim jong il and his father kim il sung have used um, sporadic acts of violence to change a status quo that they found unacceptable and i'm not so concerned that that kim jong il is going to wake up one morning and say gee you know i really want to incinerate tokyo today mm-hmm. But I do think, though, that what he could do is use low-level violence of a conventional sort, create a problem that just spirals out of control, and then anything can happen. I mean, provoke South, South Korea in some way? Provoke South Korea, but more likely try to provoke Japan or the United States. And so essentially, um, you know, wars, everyone knows that most wars are impossible, but many of them do occur, and, and that's because events do get beyond control. The real danger, though, is that when you look at North Asia, you have China, Russia being nuclear powers, the United States being a nuclear power, and now North Korea, which is not a status quo country. So we can't really contain North Korea like we contain the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union, for the latter stages of the Cold War, was a status quo power. Unfortunately, North Korea is not. Mm -hmm. So... What would you recommend? I mean, it sounds like uh, at any moment 
we could be on the brink of a uh, nuclear catastrophe with someone in charge who's not really, um, I don't want to say uh, stable, but maybe, maybe it is. I, don't, I can't look into his mind. It, that's uh, a good question. Is he, is he actually unstable? In your estimation, is he psychologically unstable or is he a, a, a madness with a purpose? I mean, I, 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 I don't want to step on your question. I'm yeah. sorry, but go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I think that um, you know, very few people actually know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. But he strikes me as being someone who uses his unpredictability to his advantage in dealing with his adversaries. So I don't think that he's insane. I, he could easily be a little bit unbalanced, or he certainly can be unpredictable. Um, but nonetheless, he is a person that we have to treat um, with the greatest amount of respect because he has been very clever. Remember, he's got this destitute country, but he's keeping the superpower at bay for a long time. So essentially, he is um, prevailing in this uh, in his uh, contest with us. So you have to give the guy a lot of uh, credit for doing a lot with very, very little. Well, do we engage him then? Do we? Uh, how, how is it that we deal with this situation? I think there's a there's some tactical ways of dealing with it and some strategic ones. Mm-hmm. On a tactical level, I think we have to align our policy more with South Korea um, because South Korea has been supporting the North, and therefore it's been giving cover to China to do the same. We need to strip away Seoul from the Beijing-Pyongyang access uh, access in order, in order to basically put a little bit of pressure on Kim Jong-il. The other thing, on a tactical point of view, we have to use leverage on China because China has really been the main sponsor of North Korea. And without China, there's no North Korea. So um, we've been patiently engaging the Chinese for decades, and now it's time for them to act responsibly um, because uh, there's really very little point of trying to integrate the Chinese into a world system that they're working to destabilize with North Korea and nuclear proliferation. On, on the strategic level, though, and this is not just a North Korean issue. You know, we're facing the Iranian crisis right now and could easily face crises in other countries. And so I think the United States needs to look at its own strategic nuclear weapons doctrine because it's really quite unpopular in the world. Um, we need cooperation from our foes as well as our friends. And we're not getting it because people view us as a sort of an aggressive hegemon. One thing that we need to do is, is maybe perhaps reduce our arsenal of nuclear weapons, which we're doing anyway because we have far too many. But the counterintuitive aspect of all of this is that we can reduce our arsenal drastically and have really no discernible effect on our own security or our ability to protect allies. But what we can do, though, is create this global wave against North Korea and nuclear weapons, and we can do that with no cost to ourselves. Well, there's a couple of very interesting things that you, you mentioned, and I want to go back. But what do you think our threshold for nuclear weapons is? What do you think we need in order to – what's the – what would be a consensus amount for, for the U.S. to protect its own interest and defend itself? We have a little over 10,000 now. Um, there is no consensus number, um, but we could probably get by with about 50, Yeah, certainly get by with 100. As Kim Jong-il has taught us, you don't even need to have a proven capability to have of, of one in order to deter a superpower. All you need to do is have the possibility of having one. You know, the United States has ballistic missile submarines, which are undetectable when submerged. So we could have a very 
a small number of nukes based on our, our submarines and still preserve a first strike capability against any other country. Um, so essentially, right now, um, we could get by with a dozen. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't recommend going down that low. I would think somewhere between 15 to 50 to 100 is really all that we need. Yeah. And to make a dramatic announcement to say that we, you know, reducing our weapons from 10,000 or so down to fewer than 100 would have a dramatic impact on the North Koreas and the Irans of the world. Um, I want to remind our listeners, speaking with Gordon Chang, the author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. That's a, a that's a, I, in some circles would be considered a radical uh, proposal given the uh, 10,000 number that you used. I remember years ago during the freeze movement, there was a, uh, a popular uh, argument, which was that uh, – the uh, commander of a nuclear-powered submarine or a uh, Trident submarine was the second most powerful man in the world, given the capability that he possessed on board those submarines. And uh, um, it, it is. It's a striking man. And we – I mean, obviously, this would be uh, an, a remarkable proposal put forward by, a, by – particularly by President Bush. But do you see this kind of thing picking up any kind of momentum and it's sort of a – uh, within the establishment, within the U.S. Uh, government, you see people... Well, maybe not this particular administration, but maybe later on. And the reason is that we're running out of ways of dealing with Kim Jong-il. Yeah. You have to consider the alternative in the sense that um, we haven't found any other way to deal with these rogue states. And the United States is going to have a very tough time in a world where our enemies are hostile and unstable regimes with nuclear weapons. I mean, the American-led global order is, is just not going to survive. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the United States as a nation could be devastated once um, terrorists get their hands on devices of this sort. Mm -hmm. You've got to remember that in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan came within inches of a complete disarmament deal with Mikhail Gorbachev in Reykjavik. Yeah. And so there is some precedent for radical solutions. But at the end of the day, the United States has to ask ourselves, like, what is the alternative? Yeah. I mean, are we going to live in a state where, in a, in, a, in a world order where any country can trigger Armageddon? You know, I don't think so. You know, at the present time, President Bush, if he wanted to, could give the order and, and eliminate human life on this planet several times over. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to be any less safe if we reduce our arsenal so that he can kill everybody just once. Yeah. But we will be less safe if other states get the bomb. And that's happening. I, I, unfortunately, we've run out of time here, uh, Gordon Chang. Um, and uh, I, let's, real quickly, uh, I want to remind it once again, you, the, the book is Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. You can go to Weekly Signal's uh, website for a, a link to your uh, information. And, and his website is, uh, yeah, is GordonChang.com. Right. It's, mm -hmm. Pretty straightforward, right? It's straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for being on Weekly Signal's, uh, once again, nuclear showdown. Gordon Chang, uh, take care. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Right. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. 
and this is Weekly Signals.